we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. I'm Todd Benzman, fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. And our guest this week is someone I've known for quite a few years. His name is Jason Jones, retired captain from the Texas Department of Public Safety and probably one of the nation's preeminent experts on Mexican cartels. And I thought we'd bring Jason in today to discuss the border crisis in a different kind of context. Um, We usually just talk about human smuggling and the mass migration crisis, but not enough to the cartels, which are very instrumental in moving all of these vast numbers of people. I don't think we know enough about them. So Jason, I'd like to welcome you aboard. Can you just give us a little bit of background? Tell us what you're doing now since you left Texas DPS also. Yeah, it's good to be with you, buddy. Thanks for having me. Well, today I'm a border correspondent for Newsmax, but after retiring from DPS, after moving across the state nine different times, and my last state uh, duty was commanding the Texas Rangers Border Security Operations Center, I decided to go public to show the American people what is happening with these cartels, but most importantly, how what they are doing is impacting Americans all over this country. And so you're a reporter now for Newsmax and... You have a private intelligence firm. Give us a little bit of detail on that. Yeah, absolutely. What what we strive to do is collect information that the cartels are involved in and illuminate that to the American people because most media doesn't have the background and understanding of what these cartels have become and what they are doing and most importantly, their impact. So that's where we really specialize. And today I am able to do that on Newsmax as their border correspondent. And Todd, I'm on that border now. It seems like every other week, uh, pretty much at this point. I know. Well, and I appreciate that too, because I know how difficult it can be. And you spend probably more time down there than anybody I know. So let's just start with this. Just for people who don't have a working knowledge about the cartels, just give us a sense of like, what are they? How many of them are there? And you know, what's, their, what's the business? Sure. I think most people remember the cartels as the drug cartels. And if you notice, I haven't said that because we remember them as folks who are moving mostly marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, and heroin. And well, today they've diversified. They're not only in Mexico, they're global. Uh, Sinaloans, for example, are in over 54 countries, Cartel Jalisco, new generation in over 50. So they are a global criminal enterprise that has really evolved from organized crime into an insurgency into terrorism, and now where we see them today, a true parallel government in Mexico. And it's how they've been able to, you know, kill 310,000 people in Mexico. And 
The worst part of this, Todd, is that most of that information doesn't get out to most Americans. Just how violent they have become in that country and now impacting so many other countries around the world. So you're saying they're not strictly into drugs anymore. Give us like, you know, what's the diversity of their businesses? What are they doing? I like to put it that drugs is something they do. It's not what they are any longer. Today they have, and we really saw this change last year where they began diversifying from human smuggling into human trafficking of people. You know, they'll say that people are the gift that keeps giving because it's a mobile commodity. You can tell that commodity what to do and how to do it. And then at the same time, they'll tell you they're the gift that keep giving because now that they're in the United States, they still have to pay back to their debt just for crossing that river. And when I think of all the changes they've made, that's one of the really larger ones in just the last few years. The other one is this really adjustment into fentanyl. And the manufacturing, the production, and the moving of that fentanyl into the United States, working with U.S.-based street gangs to distribute it. Because at the end of the day, the overdose death crisis that we are in, and really we call it an overdose death because that's how the CDC records it. But the truth is these are poisonings. When you take one pill and you're dead, you know that's not a drug problem. That's somebody who took a pill believing it may have been something else, and now they're dead. So. You know, the game, and I shouldn't call it a game, but the game of the narcotics trade of what these cartels have become is completely different from what we knew just five and 10 years ago. And it's a very important point that not only our government hasn't made the adjustment, but, you know, most of our citizens have not because they haven't been told and shown what's happening. And that's what what we're trying to do with filling that gap. So how many cartels are there? And How much money are they bringing in? Give us a sense of how economically powerful and influential they are. Sure. So when you think of the, I call it the big six, some call it the big five, the major cartels in Mexico that are really the dominant and in control. One, most Americans know it as the Sinaloa cartel. They've been around for quite some time. The Sinaloans are probably the second most powerful cartel in Mexico right now. And like we talked about earlier, they're operating globally. You've got the Beltran Leyva Organization, which are also known as BLO. At one time, it was one of the strongest cartels and has really been mostly absorbed by the Sinaloans. You also have Jalisco New Generation Cartel, or what is known as CJNG. One of the newer ones, actually, but the largest, I would say, in regards to the level of hyperviolence being created in Mexico, one of the things that really spawned them to become so powerful so quickly is that they moved their product to Europe, to Australia, to Russia, and they were able to sell their cocaine and methamphetamine for a much larger price point than what you can make here in the United States and how they became so powerful. You've also got the New Juarez cartel. They were pretty much disintegrated from the Sinaloans in the battle back in 2011 to 2013. Now they've reconstituted themselves as the new Juarez cartel. Then you've got the Gulf, very old cartel, one that I really know the best. This cartel has become extremely weak in the last two years as they have been battling against Cartel del Noreste or CDN, also known as the Los Zetas, for control. So those are pretty much your, your major cartels. In Mexico right now. And they cover the entire span of the southern border. And I think you said they're in what, 50 different countries? Some of these, some of these cartels are really international now. Well, that's absolutely right. And it's also the misunderstanding because 
you know, I'll watch TV at night and listen to some professors who claim, you know, how these gangs, as they say, or these drug cartels, that has all shifted. They now fight for influence, both in the government of Mexico, but to control territory. And this is the story, Todd, it's just not been told to the American people to the level of control that they have. Because if you own a plaza, you own everything in it, meaning that the chief of police, the local mayor, the governor in that state, they work for you. That's how it really works. A plaza being a municipality. Any municipality in Mexico, they call them plazas. Okay. So since we're the Center for Immigration Studies, and we're in the midst of probably what I like to call the greatest mass migration crisis in U.S. history, and most, I guess, are probably all of those immigrants that are crossing in by the millions have to cross through cartel plazas and territories. Give us a sense of how are they profiting? How have the cartels changed their model of operations to deal with this? Because I read one report that they're actually making more money for the first time ever from human smuggling this year and last year than they have been for drug trafficking. What's the, what can you tell us about all that? Sure. And I think that when you look at how the Gulf cartel, specifically in the state of Tamaulipas operates, I think you could even take that a leap further and say that they're making more money off the trafficking of people than they are both smuggling and from narcotics. The difference between smuggling and trafficking being that smuggling is voluntary. They're paying for the service and trafficking would be involuntarily moving them. That's right. And then also, of course, you have debt bondage, right? So, you know, you don't have the money to pay the fee that they charge. So therefore, now you're indebted to them. Think of this. I mean, we've got literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people crossing through Gulf Cartel territory. They didn't have the money up front to pay. So now they're indebted to these cartels. So they cross that river. They're allowed to come into the United States. The federal government then ships these people to every state in the country. But yet, they are indebted to a criminal organization in a foreign country for years, if not decades to come. Think of that, Todd. You're saying that even human smuggling has been converted in a way to trafficking. That's right. Because it is a major, major, what I like to call a tectonic shift in their day-to-day operations down there. Okay. Let's take them one at a time. So let's just talk about human smuggling you know, we're, we're looking at four and five million apprehensions. That's five million, at least, that we know crossed through. Whether they got into the U.S. is beside the point because we're talking about Mexico. They had to pay to do that. Five million people in 18 months. That's, that's a lot of money one way or another. Can you just give us a sense of the impact of that on the that kind of money? Like how much money is it and what are they doing with it? So... I mean, it's just still incredible to me to even believe we're having these conversations. In 2014, when I go back to when we were seeing the first wave of unaccompanied alien children crossing into the country, the cartels really didn't care, Todd, where you came from. To cross that river was about $100, right? I mean, it was not much at all. Today, if you're a Mexican citizen, $2,500 just to cross the river. If you're a Central American, $3,000. If you are Russian or Middle Eastern, $9,000. And if you're Chinese, five grand. So you think of the amount of money, and that's just across the river. 
That doesn't mean crossing through all the plazas in Mexico. That doesn't mean going further into the United States. So we have never seen the cartels operate to this level in what they're doing in their business model in trying to maintain their hold on people so far into the United States for years, if not decades. Well, I'm not going to do the math right here, but you know, let's just say 2,500 at the bottom times 5 million. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's game changing. No, I mean, what are they doing with it? Well, sure. They're bribing more people within the Mexican government. They're putting their people who they want to run in charge and truly taking over that country more and more every day and expanding their empires globally. On top of that, the military grade weaponry, you know, another thing that the American people never hear about when they hear about weapons, you know, what do you always hear? You hear about weapons that any American can buy legally at a gun store that are being shipped to Mexico. They never tell you how those people who are straw man purchases that are making the buys in the United States are also a part of the cartel moving those weapons south. The other thing they never talk to you about is the military grade weaponry coming from Central and South America, like 40 millimeter grenades, the 50 caliber belt fed machine guns, the light anti-tank weapons, the RPGs coming from Russia. I mean, this whole other side that hasn't been talked about. I mean, that kind of weaponry can challenge a state, a central state government militarily and has in Mexico, right? I mean, talk about that a little bit. Well, and it has been. I mean, look at what happened when 2015, when Operation Jalisco went down, where the Nieto administration launched some of their most elite special forces to go after El Mencho, the head of Cartel Jalisco New Generation, and they shot the helicopter out of the sky. Look at uh, the uh, apprehension by the AMLO administration, where they apprehended Avidio Guzman, the son of Chapo Guzman, who is now part of the leadership of the Los Chapitos cell of the Sinaloans. And when they went after him, not only did they apprehend him, but the cartel took literally an entire division of families of the military hostage and threatened to behead them and kill them if a video was not released. So what did the president of Mexico, what was he forced to do? Release them. I mean, that is the validation to any reasonable person out there, how they have used their militaries. And I mean, the cartels, their military. How they have used and leveraged military-grade weaponry and how they have utilized extortion to take over that country and truly become a parallel government. Yet in the United States, U.S. citizens hear very little about it. Yeah, I think that would surprise a lot of people. So is it fair to say then that this mass migration, which has been set off by White House policies, I think we're pretty clear about that, is creating military grade forces inside Mexico that could threaten. I mean, Mexico's a major trading partner of ours. They're a major ally and they're an oil producer. Well, it's not, it could, they have. I mean, look at the elite group of CJNG. It's their enforcement wing, their tier one team, as they would call it. Look at what the Los Zetas had done and what they spawned in Mexico. The, the Los Zetas were a former GAFE special forces, basically like Green Berets in Mexico would be the equivalent, who became the Sicario and the enforcement wing for the Los Zetas. That was a real game changer. And now you see every major cartel has to have its own enforcement wing of some kind to maintain power. And literally now they are taking on the Mexican government. And 
I think I, I saw one of your reports where you talked about one of these cartels, I can't remember which one, threatened to go to Mexico City with his military. Yeah, that was Cartel Jalisco New Generation after the 2015 operation conducted, Operation Jalisco, where they shot down the helicopter as they were coming in to get him. That was the real game changer because what very few people are aware of is that Mencho threatened to march into Mexico City if they did it again. And guess- With his paramilitary. That's right. And guess what? They didn't do it again. Operation Jalisco, if you read some of the literature on it, it's considered publicly as one of the biggest failures. Fascinating. So let me ask you this. I've seen video of you, what looks like to be right in the middle of gun battles. I mean, huge firefights with tracers everywhere. But like the typical American would never you know, regard that as a threat. It's on that side. Make the case for why people in Wisconsin and Florida and New York or even Texas, the border states, need to care about these sort of organizations, these paramilitary heavily armed over there. Go ahead and make the case. Yeah, sure. You know, I've been fighting this very, very tough question for a very, very long time. You know, if you're sitting in the North, you feel what's happening in Mexico differently. You feel it through the overdoses and the poisonings happening from fentanyl and methamphetamine. Now sitting just last year alone at 93,000, by the way, total overdoses were at 107, 622. But 93,000 directly linked to that. In the southern states, we feel it through the lens of human smuggling and human trafficking much more than the folks in the north do. And if we also look at some of the murders that have been happening and the what we call spillover violence into the United States, you know, in 2013, we had the South Lake murder where an individual who was a Gulf cartel lawyer was tracked with some of the most advanced GPS trackers you can buy on the market. And he was executed. And I mean, a precision execution conducted at one of the most upscale malls in Dallas. A suburban kind of bedroom community in, in the Dallas area, as I recall. Like you would never guess that something like a cartel hit would happen. Absolutely. You know, look at 2015. You know, we had a body floating in the intercoastal of Texas down there near Padre Island, had no head. It had been gutted from the belly button all the way up to the rib cage and its entrails pulled out. And who was responsible for that? Well, a border patrol agent who was working directly for the Gulf Cartel Plaza boss in Reynosa. They cut his head off and all the sources we had said they took his head uh, back to the boss in Mexico. Look at 2017, a young girl who was autistic with her grandmother, who was also a Drug smuggler for the Sinaloan cartel, both of them were killed and the autistic girl's head was removed in Alabama. You know, and I could do this all day long, these one-offs, you know, but yet I'm told all the time, Jason, as long as it stays in Mexico, well, here's the problem. It hasn't. And I'll give you two more instances real quick that I think are important. And if the folks listening, they should look up what's known as the Hebronville Incident. It was a recorded incident where you had a human smuggling operation being conducted only by the cartel heavily armed in the United States, uh, driving with police radios and police equipment lights on the dash, including encrypted radios. Look at what just happened two months ago in Arizona on Interstate 10, just outside Phoenix. You had Sicarios with the Sinaloa cartel fully kitted, wearing chest rigs, Three Glocks on the dash, along with a 50 caliber rifle passing two Arizona 
state troopers could care less going down Interstate 10 over 70 miles into the United States. So, look, I could do these one-offs all day, but here's the thing. It's here. They are here. And the failures at the southwest border are being felt across this country in every different form possible. Yeah, you know, listen, beheadings and torture and some of these things that you're talking about sound a lot like ISIS and the caliphate over there. And I know that you have been one of the promoters of the idea that the United States should declare these cartels a foreign terrorist organization, which, of course, you know, when ISIS is declared that, that means that we can go after their money and everybody that supports them and we can ground them from air travel, et cetera. You know, make your case for why these cartels or which ones, I don't know should be designated. I know you're you're calling for that all the time. I hear it. I am. And the reason for it is because I understand the Fourth Amendment issues under the investigative model domestically very, very well. I led programs to go after these cartels both in Mexico and in the United States. And what has happened is, you know, and I don't know when the lesson will be learned. We didn't learn it after the first World Trade Center attack. We tried to use the Department of Justice to go after Middle East terrorists. And what did that get us? It got us 9-11 before we finally went after them globally. Now look at where we are with these cartels in Mexico. They've taken over the country of Mexico. And what we need to do is add speed, Todd, to the system. So how do you do that? Well, remember I said they're operating all over the world, not just in the United States. So what we get with the foreign terrorism designation is three major points. First, outside the United States, it allows us to limit their mobility Because if you're a foreign terrorist organization, you cannot be flying on aircraft and you cannot be on waterways, right? So now we're limiting that mobility. Second, you always hear about, well, we need to go after their money. Well, we've been doing that for over 20 years. But what the American public is not told is that it's still an investigation domestically. If we get the foreign terrorism designation outside of our country, we're allowed to go after their assets real time without working a two-year case because you would be stunned how fast they move money from one bank account to the next bank account, and the ability under the investigative model to keep up with it, it's almost null and zil. That's why it's not worked. And the third and final thing is you can't be a terrorist in this country and in this country illegally. So if you're here illegally and you're a foreign terrorist, I can remove you from the country very rapidly. I don't have to work a two-year case on you. That's right. That's probably one of the few categories of people that the Biden administration actually says out loud that they will deport terrorists. Everybody else pretty much gets to stay. But so why do you suppose politically it's been like even Trump could have done that, but didn't? What's the holdup? Like, what's the argument they're making against it? Why is the State Department not going through the six steps and taking care of that? Well, it's a series of things. First off, you know, the collection of data under a uniform crime report has really hurt this country because it has failed to That's be That's the to- FBI's system of collecting from police departments every year or two, voluntarily, by the way, to determine, you know, what where, where crime trends are going. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to, you know, change a billion dollar program, well, if you don't have the data to validate it, which they have not, they truly were not lying when they would tell me, you know, and I would travel this country before retiring saying, look, we've got problems on the border. They'd say, Jason, we hear you, but we don't see it. Well, they weren't lying, but neither were we on the southern border. The problem is that the data wasn't being collected. So that's been one major issue. The other 
is that we have to remember Mexico is our number one trading partner. And it doesn't look good that they have fallen to criminal organization who really should be terrorist organizations. And it's the real truth of the game. The third and big one really is that DEA and FBI battling for jurisdiction and battling for budgeting really hurt us. You know, we thought we had it under the Trump administration. You may remember he said he was going to do it and then he changed his mind. Well, that's because of the infighting between them and trying to figure out who would have jurisdiction, et cetera. And it just fell apart. But it's a shame because every day it is impacting 300 families a day because we are losing around that amount because of the fentanyl and methamphetamine epidemic of overdoses. Really, I should be calling poisonings, not overdoses, but that's how it's collected. One of the criteria for an FTO designation, as you know, is that the organization to be designated that's nominated has to be using violence on behalf of a social change or a political cause or to coerce a government. How do the these cartels do that? Anyone can look it up. I mean, it's just, look, they, they have met the threshold for many, many years. In the last uh, election in Mexico, they killed over 100 politicians and staffers. Don't take my word for it. Just Google it. You'll find it. But the problem is that hasn't been communicated. So they've tried to use the excuse, those who are against it within the government, that, oh, they're not terrorists because they don't meet this criteria. Well, guess what? That criteria was drafted in the early, early 80s, late 70s. Sorry if the world shifts and it doesn't agree with your definition, but it does. They fit everything in it. And so shame on them. And when I say they, I don't mean you, Todd. I mean the system in general. You know, I mean, these people who have said for so long that they are not terrorists. And the worst part is we've watched the great country of Mexico fall. 310,000 Mexican citizens are dead since 2007. And that's just using Mexico's data, which I can tell you is wrong right up front from the get-go. It's much worse, but that's what's at least recorded. And to have allowed these criminals to become what they have done, to go through the evolution that they have, hurt so many, not only Mexican citizens, not only migrants, but our own citizens, and our country has set back and done nothing, is absolutely unexcusable. So let's get back to the border and drug trafficking, because I know they're not just in the business of drug trafficking, but they are in the business of it. Can you just talk a little bit about the tactics that they're using in and around these mass numbers of people that are coming across? I've heard you talk about that before, and I I really would love it if you could bring that out to this audience here about all these people coming through, then they're also moving drugs. And how has that changed the drug trafficking pattern? So, you know, you hear a lot about the term operational control of the Southwest border that the cartels now have it. But if you notice, most of the people who make these statements never explain the how it works. Well, the way it works is the cartels have a unit known as the Halcones. The Halcones are Falcons or lookouts. And every cartel has them in every plaza where they control territory, including those along the border. And I have seen these hawks or these halcones over 30 miles into the United States operating on two-way handheld encrypted radios or encrypted apps. And it would stun your audience, Todd. I mean, these crooks check on and check off just like first responders. They work at eight, some work at 10, some work a 12-hour shift. And all their job is, is to report where law enforcement is and what they're seeing all around them. 
And then what they do is they're in charge of an area called a gate, okay? And so let's just go to South Texas as an example. Every bend in that river is a gate. That gate is controlled by so many hawks, okay? And so when there's no law enforcement, they communicate to Central in Mexico and they say, okay, the gate is open. So whatever you want to move, you want to move humans, you want to move drugs, you want to move high values, the gate is open. When the gate is shut, it's because there are law enforcement present. Now, if they want it to open, then they can mandate how it opens by sending a whole lot of people. They flood the zone with law enforcement, and then they create a gate open next to it. And so that's when they then move the folks. And this is how they talk about it, by the way. This isn't me. This is, if you were sitting in front of a cartel boss and you're talking to him, this is how they explain how they do what they do. So when you say people, you're talking about immigrants. They move a big bunch of immigrants around to the right. And when all the cops and border patrol go over there to process, then they're moving them through the undefended line. That's exactly right. And they've got great strategies for doing this. So let me, let me even dive a little deeper. Let's say they send 100 people to you. Well, first they watch as all the Border Patrol respond and start the processing. Then what they do upriver and downriver is they'll start sending runners. Those are people who come from either Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador because they can't turn themselves in. If they do, they'll be deported. So they send the runners. If the runners get through, well, then they know their gates are open. And then that's when the high values, that's when the drugs and the commodities that belong to a higher ranking boss within the cartel are moved because they know the lanes are open. They forced it to be open and now they move what they need to move. And this is the story that plays out 24 7, 365. Your border never shuts down. And the worse weather that's going on down there, the more commodities and product they move, including small children, which they consider a product. Is there a way to quantify that more drugs are entering the United States in this way than were before this mass migration crisis? Absolutely. You see it in two data sets. First one is overdose deaths, right? Second is in the seizures that we are seeing. Remember, you have 18,000 plus law enforcement agencies in this country. U.S. Customs and Border Protection right now is seizing more methamphetamine and fentanyl than they ever have, period. The last two years, it's not a subject of thought, perception, more than ever. And then now let's take the seizures that we're seeing domestically in the country. Look at what happened two weeks ago in Albuquerque. This was a major tripwire. Over a million pills of fentanyl, over 142 pounds of meth, and $4 million in U.S. currency. Who was it they seized it from? It was EME, Mexican Mafia, and it was the Sereno Street Gangs who were working directly with the Sinaloans. And Todd, here was the worst part. This was a one-month investigation. I have never seen that level of scope. And, and if you notice, you see one million pill seizures of fentanyl routinely now. So that's how I validate it. That's fascinating. We could go on for a long time with this. But before we close up, I want to hit you with just a couple more. You know, regarding fentanyl, we know there's 107 or 110,000 deaths as of now, overdose deaths inside the United States. But talk a little bit about how that gets manufactured on the Mexican side and trafficked into the country. Who's behind it? How does it work? 
Sure. So there are two major cartels that really should be the focus of this issue and the focus of the, of the U.S. government right now when it comes to this issue. First, that's Sinaloa. Second, it's Cartel Jalisco New Generation or CJNG. These two are working mostly with China, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh to get chemical precursors in for their uh, labs. Do they fly it in or ship it in? Mostly shipped, mostly shipped by far because you can bring those big containers in and then store them and they buy in mass. And we really got to see that through COVID because, you know, a lot of people perceived that because of COVID, this may be the thing that actually slows down the overdoses. And what we found was the exact opposite because they are buying in such bulk at a time, it didn't even impact their operations. And you can see that in the data, by the way. And so they get these chemical precursors in, and these these labs are massive. I mean, you've got meth labs down there right now that are able to produce anywhere from three to five tons of methamphetamine a week. I mean, they're, they're, these these things are incredible. They call them mega labs. And when it comes to the pill mills for fentanyl, you know, they're pushing out millions of pills. And that's why you're seeing the death count continue to rise. But most importantly, too, Todd, the level of seizure numbers are, are rising. I mean, when we're talking about seizing a million fentanyl pills, Imagine how much death that is in the United States. And the weaponization of fentanyl by these cartels is really something. And you see it because we always hear about fentanyl. What a lot of folks are not aware of is that their chemists who were hired directly out of Mexican universities have now diversified their, their fentanyl production into not just regular fentanyl, but parafentanyl and serafentanyl. You know, we're talking about Serafentanil, this is what you use to put down elephants and rhinoceros in Africa when you dart them. And yet they're producing this stuff for the United States now, consumption, which is killing its host. So the weaponization of this drug can absolutely be validated in the overdose deaths. The problem is we are doing nothing to stop it. What can we do about the precursor drugs coming in from China and India and all these other places, if anything, are we doing anything with that? And this brings to mind what we did in Colombia with the central government to, you know, we used to blow up labs in the jungle. No problem. We would raid them. We'd bomb them. We'd burn them up. Why aren't we doing that in Mexico? Because we were suffering with massive leadership failures within the Homeland Security Enterprise period. You know, their job, as you know, is they are not leading on this subject. And this is the real problem here. It's not just a left or a right issue. I mean, the truth is, even though we have the Biden administration in, in power right now, we saw none of this happening uh, under the other administration either. So we've got some real problems explaining to the leadership of what has been taking place and to go after them. But here is the solution. I'll just put it out here real quick, real fast. We work with host nations to push intelligence to go hit these labs. If they refuse to do it, then we've already got them designated. Now every T is crossed, every I is dotted, and the, and the answer is very clear. You're either with us or you're against us. You're either going to do it or you can go, go along and let these cartels overtake your country. But at the end of the day, Americans are not going to continue to die, and these labs are going to be taken out, and we're going to stop what's coming into this country. Because I will tell you this, it is much bigger than just chemical precursors coming from China. It's a full spectrum approach. We've got to go after all of these countries who are sending chemicals. We've got to go after the cartels labs, but also their logistics, because let's say you just go after the chemical precursors, right? You still have a major problem. 
they will adjust. Their chemists will adjust the analogs. They will make it with another type of chemical. We'll still be stuck with this. The second thing is that these labs are so big and producing so much poison. If we don't start taking them out, we cannot see the rest of the way out of this problem. Why can't we have a collaborative like we did with Colombia in those labs with Mexico? We absolutely can. The truth is we have not forced the hand of the AMLO administration. They are the problem right now. You know, when we were working with the Nieto administration and the Calderon administration, they were requesting support of the United States, only we were really unwilling. But let me tell you one thing that the Mexican government fears, and that is those ports of entry, Todd. And when we start shutting those things down and shutting down trade at an unprecedented level, which I know will hurt our country as well, but we have to be very clear on this. You cannot have prosperity if you don't have security. And the lack of security that is being provided to our country is a direct result of the AMLO administration not taking on their own problem has to be addressed. You can't keep passing the buck down the line. But I can tell you as somebody that shared intelligence with Mexico personally, who saved lives in that country and who stopped major portion of what the Zetas were doing to people, that this is absolutely winnable and fixable. The problem is Americans just aren't told. Right. Okay. And we'll wrap up with this. I understand that you and a group have completed a fairly elaborate assessment, a threat assessment. Tell us about that, where it can be found, generally what it says and and who backed it. Yeah, sure. Uh, A group called the 18 Minutes out of the Houston region funded it. My company, Omni Intelligence, uh, drafted it. I hired some of the best of the best who know Mexico and who know this border issue better than anyone. And we brought them in. And for the last, I guess, four and a half, almost five months, we've been working on this. It will be unveiled on Friday of this week, the 16th. It will go out nationwide. And it is the first of its kind to actually identify the current threats that we are facing under what's happening, to be drafted privately, to be funded privately, and to call it the way it really is without any bias from the left or the right. And it's getting ready to hit with 43 recommendations and not just the problem, but the solutions to the problem. And so it's really unprecedented what's about to happen. Where can people find your assessment on the cartels? Sure. We're going to have it on my website at jasonjones.com. We're also going to have it on tripwiresandtriggers.com. And then it will also be posted on 18minutes.com. And Jason is J-A-E-S-O-N. Correct. Yeah, I got that crazy Ivan E in there. Yeah, I don't know why they did that. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you spending the time today. There's a obviously we're just touching the tip of the iceberg here. And I also want to thank you for your service. I know what you're doing and I know what you did with DPS. You and your team definitely saved a lot of lives over there. I was there. So uh, appreciate it. And you know, keep on swinging, as you like to say. Hey, buddy, let me tell you, you've done great work as well. And, you know, your work is being seen all over the country. And I, I say the same to you, and I truly mean that. And congrats on the new book, because it's going to be a huge hit to really show and illuminate the failures at this border, but also, most importantly, the solutions. And by the way, your stuff is in this assessment, buddy. Glad to help. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Jason. Good to be with you. And finally, I'd like to address the cartel plague in Mexico and why that has implications for American foreign policy and for all Americans. 
it's true that nobody really knows how much money the cartels are earning with this mass migration crisis, but there are some pretty good estimates out there, even though they're fairly wide. For example, last year, acting Deputy Director of ICE, Patrick Lechleiter, told Congress that the human smuggling industry was generating somewhere in the neighborhood of about $500 million a year up until about 2018. And then he established that as a benchmark for you know what was typical. And then Lechleiter came back and said that the cartels now, since the big 2019 crisis and into the future, was earning billions of dollars, as much as an estimated $13 billion through 2021. So from $500 million to $13 billion is just an epic, massive increase in cash. And there's another estimate that comes from John Condon, who's the Acting Assistant Director of International Operations at ICE's Homeland Security Investigations. His came in a little bit lower between $2 billion and $6 billion. But either way, the billions of dollars that the Mexican cartels are earning are a threat to the United States in this way. The cartels tend to use their cash to buy weapons, as Jason just told us. And when they buy these military-grade weapons, we're talking about armored vehicles, tanks, shoulder-fired weapons that can really counter the Mexican military and in recent years have successfully countered the Mexican military. And why is that a problem? Well, that means that there are very powerful even more powerful now in the last year and a half, paramilitary forces operating inside a sovereign state, exercising and exerting influence on the central government and its decisions that often have to do with us, with whether drugs get through, with whether people get through into our country, into the United States. But like Jason said, there have been threats credible ones, by Mexican cartels to just take their paramilitaries into Mexico City. Something like that is on a whole different level because, you know, technically, theoretically, these cartels could overthrow the Mexican government or simply threaten to do so. And that is a problem for the United States because Mexico is our biggest trading partner. It is an oil producer. It behooves the United States national interest to have a stable working government to our immediate south of that importance to the American interest. And so for that reason, I think that the Mexican cartels deserve to have a higher place on the table that we as a country should be doing more to counter those cartels for our own interests. That's it for today. I'm Todd Benzman, Senior Fellow for the Center for Immigration Studies. 